You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Hi, everybody. Thank you very much for coming along on a beautiful Melbourne evening. Uh, my task first up is to acknowledge country. I would like to acknowledge the people of the Uluru and Woiwurra language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nation. Importantly to note that we are on their unceded land as we engage in this conversation tonight. I'd like to also acknowledge and pay my respects to their elders and ancestors, past, present and future, and acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional custodians of the lands and waters across Australia. I'd also like to uh, acknowledge in particular some shared knowledge that we'll be engaging with this evening, that of the Jiribal and the Gaelic people and also of the Barkington people. So thank you very much for coming and I'll throw over to Esther. Thank you, Jock, that was just a little bit. Uh, so I would also like to acknowledge the people of the Boerong and the Boerong language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nations on whose unceded lands we gather here today, along with any other Indigenous people here today, and I respectfully acknowledge their ancestors, elders past and present. My name is Christine Phillips. I am a non-Indigenous architect and lecturer from RMIT, and I would like to welcome all of you here to this conversation. Tonight we're going to be talking about the role of design for both Indigenous and non-Indigenous designers and community members in the memorialisation of the frontier wars in Australia, or as Carol just um, informed me, as some Aboriginal people call it, killing times. I would like to thank Sarah Lynn Reese for this opportunity to participate. Where is Sarah? Oh, there she is. Thank you, Sarah, for inviting us to participate in this year's Blackitecture series, which is always uh, which is a great honour. Um, so I'm going to start with introducing our speakers here today, and then I'll give you a little bit of a background and context about what has brought us here this evening. Next to me, I have Carol Gosam, who is an Indigenous graduate in architecture, a lecturer, a researcher in the School of Architecture at University of Queensland. Carol is closely affiliated with the Aboriginal Environments Research Centre and she's currently a research fellow within Indigenous Design Place, a cross-faculty strategic research initiative which is funded by UQ. Carol was also a recipient of an ARC Indigenous Discovery Award from 2014 to 16, and her research interests are really about the intersection of Indigenous themes in architecture and related fields, leading to diverse works, including book chapters, conference papers, encyclopedia entries, professional journal journals, and the list goes on. She's quite an extraordinary woman. Um, this year, she was also involved in the 16th International Architecture Exhibition and has written an entry on the Australian exhibition theme of repair, which is led by Garaco and Wright Architects. 
I've known Carol for quite a few years because I've invited her to lecture as part of my Australian Architecture Series at RMIT and she's always a joy to work with. So thank you, Carol, for joining us this evening. I would also like to warmly welcome Julie Takari-Jones, who's to my right over here. Julie is a Darug woman of fresh and saltwater connections. She's a descendant and traditional custodian of the Blacktown Native Institute land. Julie works professionally as an educator, artist, event coordinator, consultant, mentor, and is a trained dancer in both traditional and contemporary genres. So like Carol, she's a, a, another great woman. As a knowledge holder of Darug's story and cultural history, she advises organizations, companies on protocols and perspectives while strongly promoting cultural awareness and self-determination. Former chairperson at Darug Tribal Aboriginal Corporation, Julie is often requested at major events such as this, and she's a tireless advocate for the BNI and a passionate and is passionate about respectful memorialization of Darug heritage and space through promotion and understanding of her people, language and culture. Thank you, Julie, for joining us this evening. We also have Josh Gilbert here, who is a non-Indigenous registered landscape architect with expertise in community engagement and Indigenous-led research. Josh is actively engaged with industry and community nationally and internationally through an academic practice in landscape architecture programs at RMIT University. Nationally, Jock's work has received industry award recognition. Jock is regularly invited to contribute to professional discourse through leading journals such as Landscape Architecture Australia, Foreground and The Conversation, as well as providing critical commentary to a broader public audience through local and national media. His research and teaching are focused around the convergence of concepts of place, country and landscape through the western edge of the Murray-Darling Basin and the development of Indigenous-led frameworks through which to approach these concepts. I've been working with Jock quite closely over the last year. It's been an absolute privilege and he's, um, I've learnt an awful lot from Jock, so it's great to have him on board this evening. And of course, finally, Simon Knott will be our chair for this night. Simon Knott is a founding director of BKK Architects. Simon has extensive experience in architecture and urban design on a broad range of projects for government, institutional, commercial, retail, and residential clients. Beyond practice, he's tutored design and technology subjects at RMIT and Monash Universities. He has, over, oh, over 10 years, he was the co-host of a weekly architecture program the Architects for a radio station 3RRR. I was also part of that team for the last five years of that program and it was always a joy to work with Simon. He's also co-hosted radio and TV shows for the ABC, is an active Australian Institute Architect contributor and has written numerous architectural publications. Simon and BKK have represented Australia at three successive Venice Biennales, 2008, 10 and 12, and I welcome Simon here as the chair. So, 
Tonight's discussion, just to give you a little bit of a context of what brings me and this team here tonight, is really a continuation of a project that Dr. Carol and I, and to some extent, Julie, were involved in earlier this year. So, Doc and I were um, absolutely delighted to be invited by one of my favourite artists, Brooke Andrews, who is a Wiradjuri artist, to take part in some of his ARC research that he's currently working on, uh, a project called Representation, Remembrance and Memorial, which is mentored by Marcia Lanton. And Brooke's research has been addressing the lack of memorials and visibility to the histories memory and legacy of the frontier wars in Australia. Brooke Andrew is currently in Oxford and so he's unable to join us here today but very happy to hear that we're continuing the conversation here today and opening it up to all of you. So uh, working with Brooke and his research assistant Jessica Neath from Monash University Doc and I and Carol ran a one-day design Tourette's um, event at RMIT and this was a very interesting day really. Um, it brought together a core group of artists, architects, landscape architects, scholars, community leaders from Australia and abroad and pardon me for referring to my notes. Um, and it was focused on roundtable workshops and conversations um, that were looking at three major case studies um, thinking about memorialisation in this space. These case studies were the Blacktown Native Institute in New South Wales, which was the first site of the removal of Aboriginal children in Australian history. The second site was Truth and Reconciliation Art Park, Art Park as part of the Macquarie Point development in Hobart, Tasmania. And the third case study was the National Resting Place for Unprovenance of Aboriginal Human Remains proposed for Canberra ACT. So we had two groups of interdisciplinary groups working on these case studies throughout the day. It was very intense. There were lots of very difficult and challenging conversations, but it was highly provocative. And what it did raise was that we really need to continue and open up this conversation, which is what we hope to do today, this evening. I'm now going to hand it over to Simon Knott to begin the session. Thanks. Thanks, Christine. Um, and uh, thank you for having me and me along for this. Um, it's, it's a really exciting time to talk about this topic and seeing everybody who's been here at the other architecture events and here tonight, um, there's clearly a strong interest in what we're talking about here. Um, I think it's my business partner, Tim Blake, that plays at the But um, regardless of that, um, it is, I think, um, a really pertinent time uh, in Melbourne's history and Australia's history to be really talking about this very really serious issue. And I think there's been an enormous, a, a, a really kind of almost a sudden groundswell, although people on the panel here think it's probably been developing for much longer than that, um, but particularly in design communities and in the art community about how we better represent uh, Indigenous culture, um, how we better represent Indigenous history, um, and what that means for our built and collective environment. 
Um, and I think um, it's coming not just from the designers and the indigenous population, um, but also from government. It's being led from a lot of uh, both state and local government um, initiatives. Most of the briefs we're seeing now have a really strong emphasis on proper uh, indigenous representation. Um, but I think it's fair to say too that there's um, a large sort of part of uh, that community, design community, that don't really know how to approach that in a, in, a, in a respectful way or even in a, in a significant way. Um, so I'm sure you all have lots of questions around that that you're, um, you're itching to ask. So we'll try to open to the audience in a little while after we've had a bit of a chat um, about what, what that might be. But um, I just wanted to, well, maybe I can just start by um, asking up um, this end of the panel, both uh, Carol and Julie, just about, um, you know, if you, if you are a kind of designer, you know, if we are setting out on this journey and it's part of the briefs, I think one of the biggest issues that people face is a, a really, um, a sort of, I guess, a, a hesitancy about how to approach Indigenous issues and this hesitancy, hesitancy around uh, not doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing. And I just wondered, you know, how, how people might start to go about sort of, sort of tackling these kind of issues around memorialisation and, and how we might better represent Indigenous culture. Hello everyone. Uh, yeah, that's a very good question. I guess um, we have recently, I've recently participated in a symposium where we've asked um, Indigenous architects from you know, Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, Métis architects, uh, architects in Canada, and, um, and Australian Indigenous architects, that very similar question. And I guess a lot of uh, people began with um, saying that, first of all, it is, uh, you might hear a lot of uh, talk about Indigenous lens and a very important part of that process, but what does that actually mean? And, um, and so Indigenous led doesn't mean that you can't have non-Indigenous people in that process, uh, but you certainly have uh, indigenous voices uh, respectfully represented um, is one thing um, and reflected in, from uh, an indigenous cultural worldview reflected in the design and design outcome of the design process um, and so that can be done in a lot of ways and it really is dependent on the dynamic of the team the contributors but also um, the indigenous well, so that's a very general response, I guess, to your uh, question. But I think the way that those architects that I'm talking about address that issue is they look to specific examples within their own country uh, where that process was really handled sensitively or insensitively. Um, and most people actually were really, um, I guess, grasping for really negative well, and a lot of people spoke positively about um, some really good outcomes in terms of design processes uh, where both Indigenous and non-Indigenous uh, collectively uh, participated in the design process and the outcome. And I think, um, I think that mindset is slightly uh, challenging in the Australian context because you from a history 
of um, consultant indigenous people, um, after a project is perhaps well and truly underway and developed, and sometimes um, that's far too late. And a lot of the indigenous architects said that doesn't happen in their country, it happens right in the very beginning. And particularly, uh, this is not necessarily around building projects that are on native lands in, in Canada or in New Zealand. Um, there's quite distinctive defined processes of um, engaging um, traditional owners or indigenous people in, in the design process. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's a good answer, and I think uh, in so we could like back that a little bit tonight, even further. I think, you know, so I guess for maybe, oh, I see Julia about it, I, I think, you know, what, what sort of basis of that then is as we um, look to establish in connection with the site when we still start designing, usually it's about unpacking the history of the place, um, and most good designers would start with that, but quite often that's the European perspective uh, rather than the indigenous one. Um, and, and I think largely that sort of, you know, is largely an oral history too. So really that's got to be done through talking. That's that's the first first place to start. Yes. Um, and I think that's one of the big problems that that my people so my people like um, Sydney, Western Sydney up to the Blue Mountains, Hawke's Bridge in New South Wales. I think that's one of the big problems we have is that um, politics have interfered in just the way we do business. And um, our oral history isn't um, respected and isn't talked about. It's it's not really acknowledged all the time. Um, it's probably their fault. Um, and we're in that bit of a bluster where uh, we've had to sort of overlook those factions that are saying to us, you know, where's all evidence about that? We've just got to let that stuff go and just work with people who have the common goal. Um, the project that I'm involved in with the Blacktown Land Institute has been a really big eye-opener for me. I have a very strong connection to that site. Um, I've been going there for 53 years. Um, for us to have been let down so many times, we've had to go on a little road of discovery with people and learn you know, to build good, strong, trusting relationships and we've had to learn to um, develop respect. Um, from what I can say, what I'm really proud about when we've been talking to people within the arts, um, you know, other architects and other partners that want to come in and, and assist us with our project, is that we've all been able to put that aside um, together for the common goal. And we've found that they're all people that are very supportive of the project, supportive of the place we're at now with First Nations issues um, and, and how we approach that and we're finding in our country that we've got far more support now than um, lack of support. Can tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, so the Blacktown Native Institute is, was originally um, formed in Parramatta next to what is now St John's Church, for anybody that knows that area at all. Um, it was formed by Macquarie to actually bring Aboriginal children there so that they could be Christianised and civilised and educated. Um, it outgrew its purpose. Um, but my great-great-great-great-grandmother, Maria Locke, uh, she was one of the first, uh, she was the first um, First Nation woman to be placed into the Institute. 
and went on to um, dispel all those myths that Aboriginal people couldn't learn, that you know you couldn't be educated, you couldn't function in two worlds. Um, she topped statewide examinations and was actually um, very highly thought of by Macquarie and was gifted land and all those sorts of things from him. So eventually the project, um, because of the, the gathering in the town square, um, the people at the time didn't want the black, you know, hanging around the town square. So we moved the Black Town or we moved the Black Town Avenue Institute out to the corner of Richland Road and Ruby Hill. And that's when the children started to be taken on raiding expeditions and brought back and placed into that institution. So it actually is the first institution, the first place of the very first stolen generation um, in Australia. Um, the land wasn't really treated with any uh, great deal of respect over the years and it was sold about 25 years ago to Nagelton and we've just had a big seven and a half year um, project and experience uh, trying to get that land back for Darrow people, which fortunately occurred this year and we had an official handover of that piece of land back to Darrow people on the 13th of October this year. Very significant for our people. Um, we also have things that we need to consider. We have children that were buried there. We don't exactly know where. We have like aunties and all those sorts of things. And then we have, you know, the Gary community there. We have the wider First Nation community there, and then the wider community again, who all want to see certain things happen out at that site. And we've had to work really hard to find a way to accommodate all that that you know has to happen out at that site. I guess the one thing that's come back to us is. Um, no matter what it is, it has to uphold the integrity of the story, the integrity of the site, and the integrity of the children that, that have been left there. And, and, and with all, um, I mean, it's always tricky ground memorials, um, particularly you know, memorials of a, you know, of a unfortunate history. Um, and you know, is there um, is there a role to play for um, how we might move forward from that as well in that story and about how the positivity around how that can oh, come yeah. together? Um, you know, we don't want to see the history of the site forgotten, but we don't want to continually see other places mourning. We want to also celebrate the souls of those children, and we want community and and other people to be able to actually come and experience that. Um, you know, we're in very early stages of consultation again with community now that we have the land back. What do we do with it? Um, what kind of buildings do we want there? What kind of materials do we want to use? Um, you know, how is this all going to be laid out? Um, infants steps. Um, one of the things we have done though is gone and talked to a lot of children um, and just said to them, you know, we as adults tend to think that we have all the answers and we know how things should be done. Um, we don't talk to a lot of children um, about what the place was about and, and if you were one of those children, how would you like to be remembered? What would you like to see on that space? And I was really quite amazed at the depth of um, not just their fear, their feeling and their compassion, but their actual ideas about what they wanted to see, how they wanted to see that develop. And what would they say? Oh, things like, you know, um, you know, they really understood that um, it, it had to blend in with the environment and 
this site sits on the corner of what used to be a kind of quiet road, but now we've got the M2 and the M4 and the M whatever's dropping all over. So you can sit on this side and actually look and just see chaos. So um, they were very aware that um, we had to have some kind of buildings there. You know, there's an expectation for a possible cultural centre, education centres, you know, training centres, um, performance spaces, uh, dance circles, all those types of things. But one of the one of the things that the kids brought up was about respectful memorialisation and they connected that to water. So they came up with drafting their water feature. Um, because you know water falling back onto mother is very clearly for the souls of the children. So um, you know they've talked about obviously it has to um, it has to be, you know, green motivated trees, they want recycling materials where possible, they want it to sit in the environment. We've talked to them about how we um, how do, how do we actually look at architecture to keep people away from space as well, not just how we use the space but where we believe the children are to be buried. How do we actually use that space? What can we do architecturally or art-wise to actually direct people away from certain spaces that are on there too? And I was actually quite wondering in the conversations that we were having. Carol, you also have a personal connection to killing arms. Do you want to talk about that? Um, yeah, so I think um, at the at the charrette, uh, when we started, because we had um, First Nations people from the United States of America talking about um, massacre history um, in the States, and um, I guess I showed a slide from Toby Bottoms book which shows uh, the wave of massacres that sort of went across the continent and started in Sydney. And, um, and through the reference to that map, it was really interesting um, looking at that map actually because I'd actually just looked at it for the first time just prior to the, the workshop and there was an oral list, there's a lot of Beautiful oral histories about massacres, and this is massacres from pastoralists, uh, from the native police. There's this a wave of different massacres from different uh, groups of people, from the from uh, the general police as well. So the distinction between the native police and the local sergeant and so forth, um, and then also other massacre sites where um, I guess enemy indigenous groups who were able to get a hold of weapons and then were engaged killings. So there's a series of massacre sites in, in general oral history and my grandmother um, who didn't tell me this story personally so when I say my grandmother it's not my great grandmother my mother's mother. So where Jingle people are from is around Tully, Finisterre, Herberton, Atherton, Tadeway. So it's sort of near Cairns, but on on the mountainous sort of areas. Then it goes from uh, 
tall hills by the palm tree, hills, rocky mountain, country down to Yabalunga country, which goes down to the, the sea and uh, through the river systems that go out to the sea. And so my grandmother, so my mother's mother, who's traditional country, was in Yabalunga country, which is on the uh, African tablelands. Uh, when she was five years old, there was a massacre of her clan group uh, and hence um, she survived and my great-grandfather and great-grandmother survived as well. Um, so that was one story and though that happened in about, it's very hard to sort of put a date on my grandmother's birth because she was born obviously not in a hospital um, and out of the indigenous births were recorded. Um, but there's an oral history and people often place it around significant events or the old people do. And they'll say, oh, there's a major cyclone that wiped out in Innisfail in 1892 and I was born, I died around and after that. So my grandmother was born around 1910 and um, she has a a number of extended kingdom of water and similar, similar age, and each of those told different massacres from their clan groups in different parts of, of the country. And that massacre period went from probably the late 1800s uh, in Jabalpatri through to perhaps the 1930s, and some uh, the killings load. Uh, and it was just slowed down just prior to the Second World War. So, um, and that's, so that sort of helped contextualise it, I guess, for people that when they're talking about this history, they're not talking about something that happened 150 years ago. It happened, it's a, it's a, a period of time in Australia's history that sort of started in the late 1700s and went through over Can I ask you, Jock, as a, as a non-Indigenous Australian, um, how do you, in your work, work sort of been interested in the uh, Indigenous history that uh, might inform some of the work you do? How, how do you go about um, negotiating that tricky ground um, and that process of consultation? That's a good question. Um, thank you, and um, thanks uh, both for sending I think um, uh, the idea of negotiation is, is, um, is, is very important in negotiating that, that space. And I think there's a sense of space that folks would recognise as conceptual and, uh, for want of a better word, a field word, but that ontological space, so the way that we conduct ourselves in life. And one thing that, that has become apparent to me is what we have to learn and as, as individuals, as human beings, as practitioners. Uh, and I, I think, uh, Simon, you spoke first up about this almost a zeitgeist situation where things are starting to open up. And I, I, I think that what we're, we as non-Indigenous people, practitioners also, are starting to understand is that 
there's a great invitation for weightiness, and it's, it's actually we are the poorer for not having engaged in what Indigenous people have to offer us. And I think that's incredibly important and powerful for us as designers, but us as human beings in Australia also. Um, so I think there's an invitation there that's waiting for us to accept, and, and what we almost need to do is to step forward into that invitation, which means leaving some of our baggage behind, um, but the, the, the transformation that's possible in that is on, on both sides of things is just incredible. Um, and I think, listening to everybody, I think one word that comes to mind is, is, is that of denial. And um, I think what became apparent out of the, the, the process of the charrette and beyond was the idea of memorialization. Uh, and again, Simon, you talked about positivity and projection. And I think that, that this idea that within memorialization, that it's not talking specifically about what happened, it is, and it's, it's overcoming that denial. But as Julie said, it is projecting forward. And, and it's just really wonderful to hear the engagement of the, of the next generation. And so when we do acknowledge country and we acknowledge the elders, we acknowledge the past, the present, and the future, that everything is coming together in, and in that moment. So the idea of denial is one of the, the more important things to overcome, I think. For us and, and that shifting of the way we see the, the memorial and what it might provide is a really big step in that. Um, just one little anecdote um, in relation to that is I've done quite a bit of work over the last few years with an organisation called the Culpamilia Aboriginal Corporation, and quite a few people in the audience I know have been there with me, so thank you for coming on tonight. Um, and often when we when we go there, um, the senior elder, Uncle Barry Pierce, will take us a little drive about six kilometers down the river. So Copper Station belongs to the Copper Millie Aboriginal Corporation. It's a beautiful property, sits on the Murray River just down from the uh, from the Darling. And um, the first time I ever went there, Barry said, oh, it was raining, so we couldn't get down to the river country. and, and uh, so we were taken to Mount Dispersion. And as a landscape architect, I was incredibly intrigued by the fact that within a 15 minute drive, there might be a mountain. And we went around the corner and, and started to slow down and pull up. And of course, Mount Dispersion is a red sand hill that's about three feet higher than the country around it. And just sitting on the top of that little, it's nothing like that knoll behind there. Um, sitting on the top of that is a is a traditional cairn that was uh, erected in 1964 by the Wentworth Historical Society. So um, rocks have been brought in, they've all been watered together and put on the top. And there's a bronze plaque on the on the side. And so the, the, the river is you know 100 metres behind it. And on the plaque, it, it talks about. Um, this site as having been the site of an encounter with uh, Thomas Mitchell between the local Aboriginals and, and Mitchell's party, and that was the site of the dispersal of that local of that local Aboriginal group. Now, as and that's written up in, in um, 
diaries, you know, from these first accounts. But as start, things are start, as that story is being told and retold and revisited now, um, Uncle Barry is the highlight of his view is to go to Tamworth, and he loves to go to the Mile Creek Massacre site, and that's what he would like to see there. He says we need to be able to sit around here and think about this and talk about it, talk to people. Um, and, and so the, the, the kind of the euphemisms and the way we name things is, is very important. I think it's bound up in that idea of denial. And so when we talk about that slippage from the frontier war, uh, first of all, the denial of the frontier war and then the language around that. So the, the frontier war becomes the killing time. It brings things home in a much more direct way. And this idea of dispersion um, encounter. These were uh, places and times where hundreds of people lost their lives. And there was no more memorial except that which was erected by the winners. Really. Uh, and so I think it's incredibly important. And it comes back to how we engage in that conversation from the start as a collaboration. Wait, oh, sorry, I just want you to voice to no, you know. <laughs> um, In North Queensland, we use not called blunt terms. Uh, there's a place called Murdering Creek, um, and Battle Creek, and then there's innocuous ones called Blunder Falls, where uh, the local pastoralists herded uh, Aboriginal people like sheep over a, a waterfall. And um, archaeologists and um, this story that Chinua people had as an oral story was often um, denied and rejected until archaeologists, because it's an incredibly difficult site to access, actually, crocodile infested river system um, down a creek base. So um, some very adventurous archaeologists. Uh, went down there and photographed all the skulls and uh, remains and, and so so there's a, a mixture of um, you know innocuous terms as well as like very blatant terms in Indigenous culture. Well, it's, it's a really important point. I think you know whilst whilst we can talk about being positive and positive ways to move forward. Um, so I think accuracy and understanding of history is also important. And, um, I, mean, I was lucky enough, I went to a rather conservative private school, but I was lucky enough to have an Indigenous teacher there who taught us at a, you know, 40 years ago, um, said to us, I'm going to teach you about what happened to Indigenous Australians so that if an angry Indigenous person comes up to you in the street, you'll know exactly why. And that was the first time as a sort of 11-year-old that I kind of understood anything about that. And it was never taught to you in school. It was never kind of um, explained to you in any way. And I think the majority of Australians have no real understanding um, of what that might mean. So um, is, that, is that the role, and, and as we're now starting to uncover or start to understand a little bit more about those massacres and what they might be, I still don't think most Australians have any idea of the extent of what they are. And um, there's a lot of guilt associated with that. Lots of you know, people's sort of part of our of our history. 
Is that the role of the memorial to start to explain that? Is it the role of is it the role of history? Is it the role of schools? I mean, how do you how do you sort of establish that? You know, this is fact because we do this in a society where you know, the written word is given primacy, you know, the legal document, um, but that doesn't exist. And we're not. We're also used to going to country towns around Australia where we see so many memorials for wars. Um, the non-Indigenous wars, so I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, beyond the name, how important do you think the spatialisation and the design of the memorial around these horrific massacre sites is? And in fact... Um, that's a, yeah, that's a, I think the, that requires an incredible amount of consultation. I know that um, in people's country, that hasn't actually been addressed in any form or manner in terms of uh, that acknowledgement. Uh, obviously, because we, uh, Aboriginal people, uh, you know, don't have the economic resources to create memorials, and it's, I, it's either highly dependent on state government wanting to engage in that. Uh, we certainly have um, a history. Uh, in Queensland, the Indigenous artists that can do that in really quite um, uh, provocative ways. Um, I think of, um, you know, uh, a particular work which was in front of uh, a court uh, building in Brisbane, which had a series of lilies um, representing one for the 216 massacres. Uh, and I think that that number of 216 is, is actually an incredible underestimate because the general history is uh, any indicator. There are at least 10 oral stories uh, of massacres within Indigenous people alone. There's a way, you know, a huge uh, number of about 
who it's for. I mean, I'm not thinking about the Blacktown Native Institute. Would it be a memorial for the Darug people to remember the children, or does it have multiple audience uh, as a way to educate the sort of greater public as well? I mean, kind of whatever, whatever you've got. Yeah, it's a bit of both. Yeah. Um, obviously, they're not just Darug children that are buried there. So the raiding parties actually started to go out. We had Maori children um, that were actually brought to the Institute, and there's two there as well. So for us as First Nations people, for me as a Darug woman, I've always grown up with my you know, grandmothers and my grandfather. It reminds me of my obligation, which is to not just look after my own home on my country, but to look after anybody on my country, whether they're living, visiting, passing through. And we have, and we, we want to continue to actually honour all those people from all those different places and care for them like we care for our own. So we've done that by, um, we've recently had corroboree um, out, out there with the changeover and, you know, we reached out to um, a lot of communities all over New South Wales um, to send down dancers and, and to represent them well because we don't know where they're from. So we've opened that space. For other people, because that's how we feel we have to honour um, those that aren't Derek on our country as well. Um, and and we'll go into consultation with the Maori people as well to see how, how we best um, do that. Um, so it's going to be, yeah, it's, it's, it's a new journey and it's, and it's a whole new thing for us because this is, as I said, the first bit of land that Derek people have ever got back on their own country. And we have to fast boundaries, so it's quite, well it is significant, I can't see in my lifetime what my people will live there, another lot of land, so it's really important that we do it right, um, and, and that we, yeah, that we get it right, so, and, and it can't be done on our own, I guess, you know, I've been part of a 35 year struggle um, to try and get that site back, and when I've had that land for 25 years, and every time they went to do something with it, it stopped. So individually, we couldn't, we couldn't get an outcome either way. And so we had to come together and we had to say, what is the goal for this site? And through that learning journey, um, so much sharing and, and mutual learning was done. And they learned my story. They learned the story of my people. They became attached to the country and they fought harder for that place. And we built, you know, really, um, enduring relationships, not just within that space, but personal space as well now. Um, and it's such a blessing for me to actually um, not have to carry that burden on my own anymore. I, I feel like I have a whole new group of people that I can share that with. So. Um, do you think we get um, maybe an idea in terms of the way from this? You talk about getting it right and um, the white way. Is there an idea that a memorial is an ever-changing thing? Something that grows over our lifetimes and grows with changing perceptions and that might be an evolving thing rather than something that gets right on to the oh, time. That, yeah, that site lives and breathes. It has its own voice. We've gone out there to have events and 
um, people had attachment to particular things. And I think you find very similar things in the Indigenous community, that you'll find a generational difference between uh, 80 and 90 year olds. Um, there are Indigenous people that age in, um, in our communities. There are in different communities, uh, down to young people. So everyone has a, a different idea, and particularly um, in some communities, um, not listening to young people is a, you know, it's something that's often deferred to the elders and, and uh, community leaders. And so, um, how do we incorporate, you know, those different perspectives in, is an important thing. Yeah, I feel a sensitivity. I think it's a big uh, sort of phrase that we forward to. You've ever seen um, Ireland's uh, documentary about her during the Vietnam War uh, in Washington. I mean, to see her as a young Asian American standing up um, against the sort of Vietnam death and some of the issues she copped and stuff that has informed the presumed to one of the most probably successful more of the they've done contemporary time. Um, it's, a, it's a great example of feel of sensitivity. Uh, and, you know, any young person kind of showing the way forward. Um, I just wanted, you know, to switch the conversation just a little bit to, um, I think in memorials we quite often get sort of tied down to the fine idea of representation. But I think we do in um, when, you know, a lot of uh, Indigenous um, or attempts at Indigenous representation in architectural work environments often come down to um, a pretty simple sort of representational idea or pattern making or some kind of token. Um, and I think, you know, what you've talked about is perhaps, you know, more than probably, I mean, in my mind, what I've seen when you talk about these robberies and about kind of how you sit within the land, um, actually, you know, the most powerful a memorial might be just is the way people occupy that space and the way that they use that space and the, and the customs that come around that tend to be, you know, make perhaps a more kind of, um, I guess, a more irrelevant kind of way of making a memorial like that space. And there's so many different ways we could sort of address that beyond the sort of visual representation. Um, 
Yeah, as I said, it's like it's inauthenticity, but we, we want to maintain the big goal is to maintain the integrity of the science, to listen to the land, to listen to what she's saying to us, because that hasn't been done for such a long time. And I think whilst um, we want to, you know, have certain buildings, we, we haven't really thought about how that's going to look yet. So we want to have those things there because we do want to open up. We do want to educate people about the history of New South Wales, the history of Sydney, the history of Blacktown. We've just gone through the, the same thing. We had um, a Liberal government sitting um, in Blacktown who wanted to change the name um, of the word Blacktown because they didn't want to have to confront the history of why it's called Blacktown because initially it was the place where the blacks went, so it was actually the blacks town, and then it developed into black town. Um, they wanted to change it, but you know, like, are we going to change Mount White? Are we going to change, you know, Green River? Are we, it's just sometimes it just gets silly. But the community came together um, about that, um, and, and of course, it didn't happen. You know, they're proud that it's called Black Town. We didn't want it changed as we were going to your house. We didn't want it changed either because. We've seen it as another way to whitewash our history and to take us right out of the picture. Because um, on my country, people don't even believe that we still do ceremonies. They don't believe we still have culture. They don't believe we still, you know, go out bush and do business because we're Sydney and we're so urbanised. Um, and of course, it happens. Um, it's just not something that's done out in public and it never has been. So I, I guess. Yeah, the, the way we want to look at it is to, to try and keep the site as, as natural as it is, but be able to use the space um, to honour its history, but to also you know, bring in community and other people to be able to learn and, and to be educated. And I mean, it was left for Darug people, um, for current and future generations in perpetuity. You know, we want to be able to train people, we want teachers, we want architects, we want that. So, you know, money and profits that come back into this organisation will actually go back out to train first nation people. So that, you know, they can not have to go to school and be told that, you know, oh, you, you can go and work at Target, that's a big enough job for you. So. Oh, it's a good, I mean, I think a really good point about, you know, starting the conversation, as Doc mentioned before, your conversation has started to open up. And um, even the last you know, five years or so, there's lots of uh, younger Indigenous architects now around. There's people like Harold, people like Sarah, uh, Jeffrey, Ruben. There's lots of people out there who are really starting to accelerate that conversation. But it's up to the non-Indigenous architects to be going out there and being part of that as well. I wonder if you, Jock, I mean, have you ever sort of had those conversations or started those conversations and, and got it wrong? And, um, you know, <laughs> your experience? Um, yes. And I, I, I think that comes, I'm not sure whether it's, we were talking about this earlier actually, and I, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure whether it's bravery or whether it's naivety or a combination of the both. Um, but I, I do think something really fantastic came out of Carol's symposium a couple of weeks ago. Um, because I, I, I think often it's, there's a representation that everything is always warm and fuzzy and, and these ideas of collaboration participation and engagement, they're all kind of, uh, again, it's related to denial, I think, but it, it tends to rub the hard edges off. And what came out through the workshop was that there are difficult conversations to be had. And what we're doing, and actually,
to what we're engaged in now, and I think in a way it is the process of memorialisation that I have been able to create the space and talk about this, um, is, is allowing that space. And so it is an act of reconciliation. There has to be generosity on, on this side. But within that, there will be charged moments. And um, the, the lovely thing that came out of uh, Carol's symposium was towards the end of the day, Dylan Comberberry um, talking about this idea that there, you know, in ideological terms, there's a, a, a perhaps a right-wing position which is might be represented as one of denial in, in more general terms. And a kind of far left position, which might be represented as, as being slightly more paternalistic and kind of, you know, reaching out and helping. But what we're doing is actually seeking to occupy that middle ground, and that middle ground is often seen as being a kind of a safe place. And and in actual fact, that's the really difficult place to be because we don't know. We will make mistakes. We do make mistakes, and I've made lots of mistakes. I'm in, in incredibly grateful to all the Indigenous people that I've ever worked with because you are told that you've made a mistake and then you move on. And as you said, really, you don't make that mistake again or you don't ask that question. So there is a generosity there. There's a, there's a, a kind of, uh, that, that falls out. But we do um, have to recognise that there are, there are uh, tricky moments and it's incumbent upon us to embrace that and not to, to kind of move away. I think we've all had, had, had that, you know, it's, it's, we're all people, we're human beings, that's what happens. Embrace the centre. Maybe the idea for a political party. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but I, I think the centre is so often represented as being this kind of safe, you know, kind of asinine place. And, and actually, in reality, that is where the work is done. You're not, you're not being ideological. You are open to these shifts alternative views of alternative ways of reading. Yeah, I think well, there is that contested ground. And that can be, Absolutely. That can be a really positive thing. Yeah. Um, it can be a really great place of, um, to see projects and to really see some new political things come out of that, which is ultimately what I'm here for. Um, uh, we've been talking a lot, so I'm going to try to open some questions so we can take this out, actually, and sort of go through. Well, I just, I'll go and go to you just one second and then I'll but I just want to, I'm going to talk to you, to you more first, because I know um, I know that you've just done some work around some design studios looking at this sort of space, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. I can, I can talk afterwards about that. I've got a question. I think it's just good to ask a question. I think it's really worth blacking out on this issue. Um, and just giving you your own community with so many different perspectives, like some people are interested in memorialization, uh, some people are interested in education, some people are interested in justice through use of determination, all of the above. So how did you manage these different perspectives and where are you at at the moment with the project as well? Seven and a half years. Um, we've actually, we worked um, by uh, being involved with Black Town Art Centre and MCA um, in an art project out at the site, um, which council had negotiated with Yanko. And of course, then they came to Gary Longfellow and said, you know, we really need you to come and explore this space with us and tell us what's appropriate and what's not. So we all began as consultants that. And then um, there was a huge swell of interest because we have, I would say, 75% of people living in that LGA that go past that site and go, oh, I used to be the dairy. 
Um, I'm quite interested in this in the term of moralization itself and that it can be looking at the past as a way of remembering um particular racism. But actually I think what you're describing is more about the feeling about healing country and healing communities so they can connect to those landscapes. And maybe this is talking about the moralization of the way of thinking or the specific culture to look itself. Is that going on in the future? I wonder if you could talk about your experience of this process Process and um, and 
not, you know, have something that really um, connects with, with what the traditional owners want to say about that site or that, that, that particular, um, you know, his, his street. Uh, and also, a lot of um, interest in the sense of it's a story that's bigger than the place and the location as well. And they want to, they see that as um, an important part of not only telling their story, but it, it's something that interconnects with the nation and interconnects with the history of past tourism. Uh, for example, land rights movement, um, a whole range of things. And, and you know, uh, and uh, but there are significant moments, um, you know, across that time frame that Indigenous people are, are, are also interested in and moralising as well, and marking, you know, like the, you know, the 50th anniversary or the 25th anniversary. And that's something that's an incredibly new thing to Indigenous culture um, in a relative sense, you know. So, um, and I think that. That those examples just really show how um, there's, there's different ways of doing it. There's no right way, um, and and that indigenous people are really open to you know powerful expressions of marking um, those significant events, and they see it as something not just for themselves, um, but also when people come on uh, and visit, like the way for example. Yeah. I'm really interested in this 
response was no, it was have to tell the story. It has to stay there unless the story has to be She's gone back a number of years and she's working with the local Aboriginal communities to map their territory and to write, this, as she's mapped it, with where, the, where the water is and where the fields are, but there's also the stories go with it. And the elders have come and sat with her and the, and the stories are on those maps on, that she's created with them. And uh, I was just thinking, you know, that's, I mean, it's not um, architecture, but it is certainly something that seems to me really vital um, acknowledgement of the stories that were in the country. Well, so I was going to say that it was a statement from a question, but I'll throw it in here, Jack, thanks. I reckon uh, possibly the answer to the question lies in. in the idea of the corroboree and, and, and the notion that the corroboree is possible. And I think that goes to uh, both King's work and your observations of Wales. I mean, the fact that uh, culture can endure is its own, you know, as a, a living memorial that is performed, that is relevant, that allows that connection to country to be built is, it, it's not bricks and mortar, but it is certainly spatial, I think, and uh, I think that has implications for the way we do it and the way we think about it. Uh, Lewis, did you have a point that you... Sorry, Lewis. That's okay. Yeah, I guess my question is more about this, um, we've been talking about, as we've been talking about looking at sort of international global precedents and seeing them as, you know, a means upon or um, a means of looking at the, yep, for that, um, a means of inspiration. But I guess my question is, through that process of drawing upon precedents, is that actually devaluing and uh, Devaluing and diminishing the uniqueness and the, the sacredness of that specific place and that specific culture um, and that specific people's and ancestors that have had a past. And that's a question for you, Carol. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I guess I was, uh, my point about looking at precedence was not to imitate precedence. Um, but to uh, inform, because uh, you know, in terms of in terms of a, a response that's embedded in place, uh, in, in, a, in a story or uh, a memorialization or an event or uh, that's specific to that place, um, 
it requires a new response. I'm not saying imitate, you know, these international examples, but we have we have, you know, architecture and landscape architecture is not sort of a bubble that occurs in our head without uh, any sort of, you know, um, crossing over of um, other bits of information. And, and particularly Indigenous artists, you know, if we look at uh, how Indigenous artists have responded to this, and then, you know, like Fiona Foley, um, Ronald Mundine, um, there's a range of, you know, um, each have responded very differently to a difference, you know, to individual stories and um, and represented them in, in very different ways. And I think that some of those precedents are just as important as well, not just the international. I think that there are, um, you know, indigenous artists are a much greater than Indigenous architects in telling those stories, um, and um, and the way that communities want to respond to them. I'll give you an example. At Musgrave Park, I was involved in a project there, which had nothing to do with memorialisation, but it actually came up. It was a cultural centre, and the community. There were different views within the, the historical community of Brisbane to say, hold it. Um, there's actually been a number of deaths in the park, park through, um, you know, a whole range of things. Um, in, in, and, you know, we would like to memorialise those, um, those, those individual people who are from sort of community, poor community around Brisbane, which are in a whole range of places, um, who've actually passed away in the park. And so um, there was a project to actually do that, and I think I saw the I saw the result that came out of that was a, a probably a first stage response. It wasn't from from my perspective a particularly powerful response because it looked like a series of miniature gravestones in a sense, um, for want of a better term, which was around landscaping. Um, but and it was it was a um, but what was important was that, that that story, that the community at that time wanted that story to be told and they wanted to have some landscape response, whether or not the sort of off-the-cuff sort of suggestion on how to resolve that, um, which were not by um, design, you know, um, designers. Uh, I think there needed to be an important sort of translation of that story to really push that idea so that it became something that was much more uh, powerful in terms of a series of plaques and words and date, you know, this um, something that perhaps didn't weather very well. There was a whole range of design issues around the suggestion. Um, which, um, yeah, so I think that, you know, the stories are really important the resolution, I think, is up for grabs, and it's something that has to be socialised across the whole community, and not just by the designers themselves, but um, in, in conjunction with the community. And I think that's when you find that if you have a design that um, alienates the community or doesn't respond to the community, uh, then that can be 
problematic and they've reported that it's an example with me too where they um there's a process of cultural revitalization very similar to australia um and the Métis elders ask these architects to design around the element in, in a meeting space. And he said the architects kept on coming back with a tickle shape and came back with a whole range of responses. Um, well, everything except actually just, um, you know, responding to uh, what the, the elders want. And, and not even, um, you know, so each time the others kept on rejecting it, and the architects kept on getting more and more frustrated because the design process was, um, well, that's really, it's, 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 it's too simple, it's too literal. Um, we need to have something that speaks something, uh, you know, that's greater, greater than just our ground space in the room. Um, and he said the process went on for a really long period of time um, and the architect's reluctance to, to actually respond to it or the way that they respond to it was actually trying to um, diminish what the, what the elders really wanted to respond to. So you can have that process as well. So uh, it just, I don't think it's necessarily the outcome. Hello, good afternoon. Um, I was going to ask a special question to the comments as well. Just regarding that of um, the memorial life extension and about the memorial extension, what does wider Western economy mean? When I go on talking between regional Queensland, regional uh, Northern Territory, and Northern Territory, there is such a memorial as well. Those memorials actually look like they do the land. That's something that we can't forget that indigenous Australians have burials, have places of the spiritual importance to be as well as to be older. And those places have actually been shut down and actually by private companies. So when we're talking about, that's the other thing that I was thinking about, but when we talk about memorials, the theme of talking about like victims, you know, like seeing indigenous people as being victims of like the massacres and all that. What is the strategy of building memorials for those who fight back against the English Empire, like Jandamara, like Tamil Wars? I don't know if any of you have heard of them called Jagan. There was actually people that stood up, fight back, organized people, and tried actually to, to fight back. I think that's important for indigenous people to truly acknowledge in that. Actually, fight back and so it's kind of that question is that memorialization thing that we can see in engineering practices, but also design practices that kind of is meant to build something, you know, to remember something because in the indigenous culture, as, as far as my knowledge, I guess in Australia, there is not really anything of that, there is one of the those places, natural places, mainly for us. Uh, thank you for your comment. That's an alluring um, myth as well. Um, and I want to respond to that in a sense that uh, there's often this idea that, you know, it's a Western notion and, 
from this meeting really are into that, that actually uh, found that that's quite the opposite. There might be amongst some Indigenous groups, there might be Indigenous groups that you're working with, but for example, the uh, piece that I wrote about the Kokorinji, um, who are an incredibly remote group in a small, sort of discreet uh, Indigenous settlement, uh, they had a flood that went through and wiped out their entire community. And wiped out the oldest centre, a whole range of things. And this is the um, Idel Hessen project, uh, which is which is quite interesting in terms of uh, you know the oldest centre that came out of that plus a, a number of other things that were being built. Um, and Idel Hansen spoke to the community um, and the state government, and there was a fridge that was lodged in a tree um, as a consequence of the flood. You know, so it was, it was sort of an, I mean, it's hard to say how high it was, but it certainly was something about 10 or 12 metres uh, in terms of the height of the flood was that a fridge became lodged in the fork branch of the tree. And, um, and then the state government said, okay, well, we'll clean that up, we'll get that tree, uh, we'll get that sort of fridge out of the tree and we'll take it to the dump and we'll do all this sort of thing. And the community said, no, we leave the fridge there. And they said, oh, why do you want to do that? They said, we want that as a reminder of memorial of the flood. So I think there are equally a whole range of number of examples and I think it's very easy to, um, I guess for our site, our uh, 
participating in that, um, and particularly for um, both Carol and Julie and Christine and John for, for coming along and sharing the stories. And some really powerful stories there. And thank you very much for doing that. Uh, but also to Sarah for putting on this series of talks and Julie uh, for doing that. And uh, I can't help but standing here and think that uh, on such an important uh, meeting ground in Melbourne, with such an important history, both uh, pre pre-invasion and post uh, for Indigenous Melbourneans that they must have an Indigenous architecture that you So, Sarah, maybe that's a gift for you. Please talk to Naomi. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.